According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews doing our review of the series. The three-year series is complete, but we are taking a few Sundays to review things that we've probably forgotten over the last three years. Today's review brings us to chapters 5 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm skeptical that we will cover them all today. In fact, I know we won't. Uh, kind of anticipated that this section would take at least two. Some people think three or more. We could, we could spend a month or longer. I mean, our priesthood. This is our priesthood. The king, God's priest son. Last week we were talking about his king son that uh, he's sitting at the right hand until the enemies be made a footstool and he's going to go forth and he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. And Jesus, when he comes back, he will be the king. He will sit on the throne of David, but he will also be a priest. He is the king priest. And this is something they couldn't have in the Old Testament because the king was always from Judah. The priest was always from Levi. How do you have a, a priest from Judah? Well, it's a different kind of priesthood. It's the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that's what we're going to see. That's what we studied in these chapters. That's what we're going to review here today and next Sunday as well. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God to, uh, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Raise your hand. That's <laughs> the ignorant and the misguided. I tell you, Thankfully, we have a high priest, and he understands. He lived our life. He was tested as we're tested. He knows what we're struggling with, and he loves us, and he prays for us. And this is uh, what we have here in Christ. All right, so Hebrews 5, as we get started, before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's humble ourselves before him, asking for his blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege we have to review what we've been studying. We want to thank you, Father, for the past three years in the book of Hebrews. It's been powerful. It's, been, it's had an impact. And we know that it will continue to have an impact in, in the years to come. I pray that uh, for the things we've forgotten, that you can refresh our memory. And I pray that we don't forget them again anytime soon, Father, that we function in our priesthood day by day, moment by moment, the power of our priesthood is, is extraordinary. It's why we had a Protestant Reformation, because believers read the Bible for themselves and found out that we don't need a Roman priest to, to stand between us and God. We have a great high priest, your son, who purchased our redemption. So, Father, we, we love our priesthood. We love what you provided for us, and we want to make the biblical application in the best possible way. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so in reviewing these chapters and dealing with this, you should have notes available for you that are in the uh, that were printed in the bulletin. You've got a flyer that was attached in the bulletin. If you if you don't have one or need one, we can just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. It also went out by email, so you might have gotten that overnight. We're giving a, a one hour snapshot, maybe two. Uh, of 53 hours of teaching. How do you take 53 hours of teaching 
and boil it down into an hour. You just, you just can't do that. But essentially, uh, this portion uh, of the book we covered in lessons 49 through 102. So I recommend you can go back to the website, you can get these lessons and just work your way through them. And, uh, and if you were not with us that first time through, you need to do this. This is fundamental to our position in Christ. We are New Testament believer priests. And the, these chapters detail our priesthood in Him. And so there's quite a bit here that we need to deal with. And it starts with all the citations from Psalm 110. And you're going to notice here in, uh, in chapter 5, it starts here in verse 5 and it takes us down to verse 10. Psalm 110 and verse 4, this promise, uh, not only is there, you are my son, today I have begotten thee, but then there's the, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this priestly uh, ministry that we have is, uh, is entirely because of our Savior, because of our position in Him, and the position that He Himself received in His victory. It was by virtue of His victory that He now holds this position. And uh, these are the things we studied. I want to review them here today. But Psalm 110 in verse 4 is featured six times in this section of Hebrews. And you have the verses there, 5, 6, and 10, chapter 6 and verse 20, and then when you get to chapter 7, verse 3, verse 17, and verse 21. So remember Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was introduced way back in Hebrews chapter 1. It was stressed a couple times after that that because of his victory on the cross, he was invited to take his seat there. And this is what's stressed with the king side of the king, son of God. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So when Jesus returns to the millennial kingdom, he's going to be surrounded by enemies, but he will rule in the midst of those enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Now that part is fine. And if Psalm 110 just ended with those three verses, we would be great with the Messiah being the Son of God and the King, the heir of David on the throne of David. But then he goes on and he says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And right there we just hit the brakes and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what's this about? Because whether you're an Old Testament believer, uh, priest, uh, an Old Testament believer reading Psalms, you'd be scratching your head saying Melchizedek. Isn't he that weird character that shows up one time in the book of Genesis? He's in Genesis 14 and you never see him again anywhere in the Old Testament until a promise comes in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so you have an obscure reference in Genesis 14, an obscure reference in Psalm 110, and you think, well that's uh, interesting, what's that about? How can a king also be a priest? Well then later we learn from Zechariah that yes, the the coming king is going to be a priest and there's going to be harmony between those offices in the person of the Messiah. And so we have this. But you and I would be very hesitant to take Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and, and write six chapters of, the, of, of something about that. How would we do that? We wouldn't know how to do that. But God does. 
And so from, Psalm, from uh, Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, this portion of Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and the priesthood that we have in Christ because you and I are believer priests. And so we don't have to follow uh, the Levitical procedures and we certainly don't have to follow the Roman procedures. We have biblical procedures in Christ whereby we stand before that throne of grace. And this is what is spelled out for us here. So six times it's featured here. Now recognize as we deal with this, let's go ahead and look at these uses. Hebrews 5, 6. And so it says, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. So you see what the author is doing here? He's comparing a scripture with scripture. He's taking Psalm 2, 7, and he's linking it together with Psalm 110 and verse 6. The, the God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he said also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the priestly function that he has is, is geared towards his sonship. Is linked to his sonship here in this way. Psalm 2, sonship. Psalm 110, priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. And you get down to um, verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice how this is linked to our salvation. It says in verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And so even though this is deep stuff, and even though most believers never get into it, and even though, you know, you can probably pull 99 Christians off the street and ask them and say, hey, tell me about Melchizedek. You know, I I can't even imagine what kind of answers you're going to get related to that. But here we have it, and it's described in this way, whereby it's his Melchizedek priesthood that is linked. Notice this being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the authorization for him to be the source of our eternal salvation. It's grounded in his priestly ministry. All right, he mentions it again in chapter 6. Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's different. Because in the Old Testament, they had a high priest and they had a bunch of other priests, descendants, you know, uh, sons of the, of the high priest. And, and, but they didn't go in there with him. When he went in one day a year, it was one man one day a year that entered within the veil. And those other priests, they had to hang outside, wait. You know, they're not going to get their turn until dad died and the new high priest became high priest. One man one day a year. But our priesthood is different. How beautiful is this? Jesus entered within the heavenly temple. He entered within the heavenly veil, not an earthly replica. And he entered as a forerunner, meaning he's the firstborn of many brethren. He expects all of us to join him. He's the forerunner and we get to stand there with him before God the Father in his throne. I love that. He entered as a forerunner for us. Hebrews 7, 3. The typology of, uh, of Melchizedek you know, when you read Genesis, Genesis was written in such a way so that we don't know who his father and mother were. As a character, he's introduced without father, without mother, without birth, without death. 
Melchizedek is introduced as a character in such a way that he can be the maximum type of Christ uh, imaginable in a, in a literary sense. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. He is the quintessential king-priest. He was king of Salem. He was priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was a king-priest and he and Abraham had communion together. He and Abraham worshipped God together. And this is uh, it's a marvelous doctrine. And, and you would think, wow, it's an obscure character from the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews says, oh, you don't know. He is a key character in the Old Testament because he provides the typology for Jesus Christ in victory, in glory. So that's chapter 3. When you get, uh, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 7. You get down to verse 17 and verse 21. Again, it is attested of him. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Levitical priest wasn't a priest forever. You know why? Because they kept dying. And you could only be a priest as long as you were still alive and then, and then it was your son's turn. As long as he was still alive. Then it was his son's turn. They kept getting prevented by death from continuing. But you and me, our priesthood in Christ, physical death will not stop our priesthood. Because our priesthood is grounded in our eternal life that we have in Christ, and that never ends. We are eternal priests in Christ, according to this order of Melchizedek. Again, verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The impact on this too, I, I, I stressed it then, I stress it now. We have the God of truth, the unchanging, immutable God of truth. His essence the essence of God includes veracity, he cannot lie, and immutability, he cannot change. So the God who cannot lie and the God who cannot change, can't change his mind after he promises something, why does he have to take a vow? He doesn't have to take a vow. But he does take a vow. And so that tells you what a serious deal it is. It tells you how fervent and how urgent it is. And what a powerful message it is when the God who cannot lie takes the vow that he takes. All right, so Melchizedek doctrine is not for babes. Melchizedek doctrine is not for babes in Christ. The fullness of this meaty doctrine is for mature believers in Christ. So uh, if you've never been taught this before, if you've never heard of this before, if it sounds kind of weird and different, just understand this is, this is advanced stuff. Melchizedek doctrine. This is what equips us to deal with the as full and, uh, engaged combat operators in the angelic conflict. That we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. This is a warning here in Hebrews 5, and I like preaching this. This is a, uh, an exhortation that says, grow up. Why haven't you grown up yet? You know, it's almost as popular as Hebrews 10 that preachers like to hit that verse and say, quit skipping church. In uh, Hebrews 10, 25, that's a very favorite verse for pastors, and I think they missed the point on that. But anyway, this is my favorite verse. Why haven't you grown up yet? You need to grow up. And you should have grown up by now. So again, talking about Melchizedek, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning whom we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. If you're a babe in Christ and you're on the way to hardness of heart, see, dull of hearing is halfway to hardness. If you're dull of hearing, if you're just kind of, you know, eh, take it or leave it when it comes to doctrine, and well, you know, the Bible's nice, but 
you know, you, you, can, you can live with it, you can live without it. If that's your approach on the Scriptures, you can take it or leave it, and then you don't really need it day by day. Let me tell you, you need it day by day. As the deer pants for the water brook, you need it day by day. And if you think you don't, you need it more than you realize. You're, you're on life support right now, I don't even know. Hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the stoicheia, the elements, the ABCs of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Melchizedek is solid food. Melchizedek is meat doctrine. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. You know, you get a, a, an infant, a newborn, and, and yeah, that's, they're designed for milk. And they're, they're nursing that's at the breast. That's what they're doing. And you're not going to take a newborn and take them out to, uh, you know, steak and ale, and, and uh, they can't handle that. I'll, t- I'll eat the steak for them. How about that? <laughs> Solid food is for the mature. Notice now, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. These aren't just Bible students that have become Bible experts. They can, they can win a Bible quiz. And uh, no, they, because of practice, they are hearers and doers. They're disciples that are living out their faith. And they can, dis- they can discern good and evil. They can see the culture around them. They can observe news stories and current events and things that are happening in our culture. And they know good and evil when they see it because their senses have been trained they're shaped by the Word of God. If you're not shaped by the Word of God, then you're going to be shaped by the world and you'll, have, you'll be clueless as to the good and evil because you're living in it. You don't even smell it anymore. You're just living in it. And that's, uh, that's the aspect there. Melchizedek doctrine is not for babes. The order of Melchizedek priesthood is centered in the high priest source. You want to call him the grounds, the basis for eternal salvation. You know, the the high priest for the Old Testament, he had an important job, but he wasn't the basis for anybody getting saved. <laughs> okay, Aaron, and whether if he was a faithful high priest or if he was if if uh, he was not a faithful high priest or somewhere in between, nothing Aaron did had any basis for whether any Old Testament unbeliever got saved or not. Their priesthood was not grounded in salvation like ours is. In fact, you could be an unbeliever and be high priest as long as your dad was high priest and he died and, and you got the job. Whether you were saved or not, how sad is that? We highlighted a few minutes ago Hebrews 5.10. The order of Melchizedek priesthood is centered in the high priest grounds, the source, the grounds, the basis for eternal salvation. That's why you can come in here and we it's fine with anyone that visits. We, we welcome visitors and so forth. But to be a member... To be a member, you've got to be saved. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet with you. I'm going to sit down and say, hey, tell me how you received eternal life. And I want to hear your testimony. And, uh, and if, if I think that it's kind of fishy, like you tell me, well, you know, I was baptized when I was two. Well, I don't care. Tell me how you got eternal life. <laughs> tell me when you were saved. I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear, the, you know, why do you think you're going to heaven? And if that's up for question, then I'm going to, I'm going to give you the gospel myself, and, you're, and we're going to see, we're going to get you saved here. You got bigger problems than becoming a member of Austin Bible Church. You need eternal life, and those issues there. Anyway, it's 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 interesting, and so when you see these things, um, when we see how again and again and again these issues come up pertaining to salvation, 
And I think this is useful for us too to recognize the basis is not in our works, the basis is not in ourselves. We need to know when Hebrews is talking about salvation, it's obvious. And when it's giving warning passages about apostasy, it is also obvious that those are different passages. And he's not threatening to take away your salvation if you are falling into apostasy. Don't confuse the warning passages with the salvation passages. They are not linked. We often link them, sadly. Arminian theology often links them, sadly. But Hebrews does not do so. All right, so Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You want to teach the doctrine of propitiation? Here's a, here's a passage to do it with, okay? He satisfied the righteous demands of God the Father so that sin is, is paid for. The ransom payment has been made. God is not just winking at sin. He is satisfied. The payment is sufficient because the payment is infinite. Hebrews 3.1 Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, centering on our status as born again believer priest, our salvation and his role as the head. Nope, don't do that. See, I do the wrong, there we go, control G, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There was not one high priest in the Old Testament that passed through the heavens. Not one high priest ever propitiated God the Father so that when he was done inside the Holy of Holies that God the Father was so propitiated he summoned that high priest to stand in his immediate presence in the third heaven. Every one of those high priests finished what they did on the Day of Atonement then they turned around and they came right back out. And they were ready to do it again the following year. But Jesus, one sacrifice, one time, passed through the heavens, was seated at the Father's right hand. It's a tremendous contrast. And so we hold fast our confession. He's the risen Savior. He's the victorious one. What a glorious church as we sang in the, in the hymn this, this morning. Hebrews 6.20 Jesus, as we saw this already, entered as a forerunner for us, become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The grounds, the basis for our salvation connected to his priesthood. Hebrews 7.16 who has become such? What are the requirements? Could you and I become Levitical high priests? No, we're not even Jews. We're not of, of the right tribe. We're not descendants of the, of the previous high priest. How would we even do that? Gentile dog that I am. Okay, But notice this priesthood is not connected to physical requirements. Not connected to your physical birth. Who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement but according to the power of of an indestructible life. Oh, I love that. Because you know what? I have that indestructible life. You have that indestructible life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive eternal life, this indestructible life. You're ushered into this priesthood and you're qualified. He makes you qualified. Down to verse 26 and 28. 
It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to have a sacrifice for himself because he's not a sinner. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, that's the vow God took, which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. I'm telling you, he's the, this priesthood is the grounds for our salvation. The idea that we can lose it or throw it away or stop being priests or, or lose our eternal life means, what does, what does that mean? He's going to lose his priesthood? No, he, he holds his priesthood forever. They are linked together, our salvation and this priesthood. Can't lose either of them. So the main point of what has been said is this. Isn't that great? The author just says, in case you missed it, in case you weren't paying attention in chapter 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's another thing. He took his seat. Show me Aaron or one of the Old Testament priests. They never sat down. Ever. They didn't even have a seat in there except the mercy seat. The, in, the, in the holy place, he had a, a table and he had a candlestick and he had a laver and he had an altar. There was no seats. Which I think is probably why the Orthodox churches, they don't have seats either. You go to an Eastern Orthodox church and, and everybody's standing. Okay? So here's the main point. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat, a minister in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. We have such a glorious high priest. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. And he he does, all day, every day. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And we need also, that's our priesthood too. Are we letting the fire go out on our altar? We need to be offering up our sacrifices as he's offering up his. 9-11, Hebrews 9-11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle made without hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He died on the cross And as we read it in the Gospels, what happened? The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two. And he didn't go in there. Had no need to go in there. He's hanging on the cross. The veil is rent in two. The empty room was exposed for what it was. Because they didn't have an Ark of the Covenant. The empty room was exposed. There's an empty Holy of Holies in the earthly temple. He didn't go in there. But on the third day when he rose from the dead, he went to heaven and he took his blood and he cleansed the heavenly temple. He entered through the, the heavenly temple, the greater, more perfect tabernacle made without hands. That's where his priestly service took place. We're going to talk about this at communion because he shed the blood for Israel's redemption, but the blood is not yet applied for Israel's redemption. He, that's waiting for second advent. That's when he comes back to bring Israel their kingdom. Hasn't happened yet. Finally, Hebrews 10.21. We have a great high priest. Since we do. Therefore, brethren, since, since all these things are true, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, not only did he make the way possible to go in there, 
He went in there as a forerunner and he's still there serving. Why would we be nervous to go in there ourselves? We, we should be right there with him. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We stand before God the Father in priestly function and we have every right to be there because we are in Christ and we are with him in his priesthood. And so chapter 5 starts us off. Chapter 6, grow up. Biological aging is is inevitable. While spiritual maturity is a pressing on endeavor. Biological aging is inevitable. We look at these kids and they grow like weeds. They just keep growing and growing and they're walking and they're running and then, man, next thing you know they're off to college or they've joined the Navy or whatever they're doing. Kids grow up. Biological aging is just going to happen. However old you are, count your birthdays. You have aged. But now how about your spiritual birthdays? Have you aged spiritually? That is not automatic. There are some believers that never age. They never grow. They're babes even though they've been saved for 50 years. They're still babes because they've never grown in the Word of God. Spiritual maturity is a, ble- is a pressing on endeavor. He says in Hebrews 6.1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, leaving the ABCs, You know, if you've been saved for 20 years and all you know is Jesus loves me and uh, Jesus wept. And you think those are both Bible verses. One of them is actually a Sunday school song and then the other one's a Bible verse. How much scripture have you hidden in your heart? How much growth have you done? Leaving the ABCs, the stoicheia, the elementary teaching about the Christ. Let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. That foundation, the shadow doctrine from the Old Testament. Let's move on. Let's get the mature doctrines in Christ. Let's be New Testament believer priests. It's a pressing on endeavor. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Remember that? Philippians 3. Do you assume you've made it? Do you assume, I've done enough, I'm good. And now now what are you doing? You're just kind of kicked back, chill, waiting for for glory? You think you got a big pile of treasure waiting for you there, huh? Do you know how much you're throwing away right here, right now? Paul says, not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Don't assume it's in the bag. Don't assume, oh, hey, I got this gold medal all sewn up, and then you trip and the guy beats you in the race. Okay? Keep pressing on. Keep striving. Keep reaching forward. Paul says, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Hope you remember this, because this is coming back in Colossians. This prize vocabulary is coming back. When we're told, don't let, uh, don't let these cult leaders judge you. It's connected to this prize vocabulary. So we've got to press on. Don't let go. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. 
we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving, striving, copy out, to the point of exhaustion, according to His power which mightily works within me. A pressing on endeavor. It doesn't just happen. You don't get saved one morning and then you're, you're perfect the next day. You got to grow. You got to grow. And that takes work. In chapter 2, uh, stress this. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 6, stress this. Chapter 6 also has a warning about apostasy. Let me get back to Hebrews 6 here. So let us press on. This we will do if God permits. If God permits me to press on and reach maturity. I want to grow as much as He permits. Now, look at this warning. Again, it's not loss of salvation, so relax. None of these are. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, you're saved. There's about six descriptions of getting saved in those verses. You can't tell me that this is just a professing person that's not truly saved. This person is truly saved because they have been enlightened, they have tasted, they have been made partakers. And then they fall away. This is called apostasy. This is the sad thing when a believer decides he's stopping in his Christian walk, that he's done growing up, that he's done with the Bible, that he's done with church, that he's done with anything connected to Christianity. And he walks away from the Lord. Now, does he still have eternal life? Yes. Is he still going to go to heaven when he dies? Yes. And he'll have a lot to answer for. But this apostasy, this is what is, it's a terrible warning that's given here. It's given five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Apostasy is a departure from the Christian walk and it is a re-crucifixion of Christ to self. To me, that's the most profound statement in the whole chapter. Is a re-crucifixion of Christ, of Jesus, to yourself. So Hebrews 6.6, 6, apostasy. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Uh, an apostasy is a fall. An apostasy is a departure. But it's not that you've fallen out of grace or that you've fallen out of eternal life or you've fallen out of... There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Neither life nor death or things present or things to come nor angels nor principalities nor powers. God Himself can't revoke your salvation. Because God has promised to give you the eternal life He's given you. Jesus has promised to resurrect you on resurrection day. And He's not going to, Jesus can't lie to the Father. He said He's going to resurrect you. He's going to resurrect you. You have eternal life in Christ. And eternal security is undeniable. So these warnings in Hebrews can't be loss of salvation. What are they? They're loss of the walk. You're departing from the Christian walk. You're no longer in experiential sanctification. It's a departure from the Christian walk and a re-crucification of Jesus to self. And it's a blasphemy to do so. Let's look at Hebrews 6.6. So you've, you've 
gotten saved, you've been enlightened, you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sealed you, baptized you in in the union with Christ, you've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, you've gotten an appetizer. What we have in the church age is just a deposit compared to what we're going to have in glory. And then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves. Crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. This re-crucification of Jesus Christ to self. This is the biggest impact, I think, of the entire chapter. Because this is a blasphemy that exalts our dissatisfaction over God the Father's satisfaction. The fact is, God was well pleased. The Father was satisfied. The Father is the one with the infinite, eternal standard of righteousness anyway. Remember, the wages of sin is death because of the Father's standard of holiness. Jesus didn't go to the cross to do the work until we were satisfied. Who are we? We're not the standard of righteousness. He was not trying to propitiate us, either then or now, by the way. Okay? His work on the cross was not pleasing us, and His work now is not about making our lives happy. Jesus' mission in life is not to sit there and and make our life as, as happy as He can possibly make it. That's not been assigned to him. That's not his duty. We'll talk about that too. All right. But they again crucify to themselves. Meaning, meaning what? Meaning that you are placing your own standards as the criteria for what is satisfactory. You are making your own sensibility the substitute. And it's happening all the time. It's happening in churches today. In fact, the emergent church movement, this is what they specialize in. They take their modern sensibilities, we were just watching last night, taking their sensibilities, human viewpoint, if they were God, this is what they would do, or this is what they wouldn't do. If they were God, see. And so when you put yourself in the position of God, whether you have to be satisfied or not, you're just re-crucifying the Christ and you're saying it's not finished. How sad is that? So you want verses on propitiation, verses on satisfaction? Here you go, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 1 John 4.10. These are verses on divine propitiation that the Father's the one who's satisfied because if He's not satisfied, we're not saved. If the Father's righteousness and justice, if that standard is not met, then He can't compromise Himself to save us. His mercy and goodness and love would be hindered from being applied. This is something else that the emergent church rejects. They feel that God can be arbitrary, He should be arbitrary, because they don't have any problem being arbitrary. That these people, these humans, are very comfortable being as hypocritical as the day is long, and they think if God could be just as hypocritical, why not? He's God, He can do what He wants. And if He wants to be merciful and at the expense of justice, who says He has to be fair to justice? He's God, He can do what He wants. In their version of God, not the Bible's description of God. 
The Bible's description of God, he can, he's holy. He cannot tolerate sin in the solemn assembly. So our Father is satisfied. Are we clear on this? Our Father is satisfied. Eternally satisfied. And eternally satisfied by the infinite work of our Savior. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. God the Father has made a public display. You ever play show and tell? Do show and tell in school growing up? God the Father invented that game. And He loved showing off His Son. And His Son learned how to play the game and He loved showing off His Father. So they both do show and tell. The Father spotlights the Son. The Son spotlights the Father. God the Holy Spirit spotlights both the Father and the Son. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the issue. Accept Christ, you have eternal life. Reject Christ, you're going to hell. The demonstration, I say, of the righteousness of God at the present time. So that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If He's not just, He can't be the justifier. All these things are key. So when you deny this, when you go into apostasy... When you decide to depart from sound doctrine and you put yourself in the chair of God the Father and decide that His demonstration is inadequate and that His plan is beneath you and that you're offended by something you read in the Bible or something that a preacher taught. Look, it's in the Bible. Did it offend you? Get over it. Humble yourself. The Scripture says what the Scripture says. It's the eternal abiding Word of God. And we're not His editors, we're His preachers. We preach what He said. This is what He said, this is what it means. Deal with it. We're the creatures. So the, you know, I think that creator-creature distinction is, is, uh, is vital. Hebrews 2.17 He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And He did this. He made propitiation for our personal sins. He made propitiation for the Adamic lost estate of sin. He also propitiated the Father for Israel's national sins which they their transgressions under the first covenant so there's no obstacle to them receiving the new covenant when they're humbled and call for uh, their messiah to return first john 2 2 he himself is the propitiation for our sins not ours only but also for the whole world for the whole world we preach unconditional atonement unlimited atonement unconditional election the opposite of what the Calvinists preach. They say Christ only died for the elect. And so when you're giving the gospel to somebody, you can't tell them. You, you, I guess you, you have to say Jesus might love you. He might have died on the cross for your sins. If you're of the elect, what a pathetic evangelism message is that? How about He died for our sins and not ours only, but also the whole world? Propitiation. 1 John 4.10 
This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only does it tell us the right order, but it tells us that it's what He's done, not what we do. It's not our love. It's God the Father's love that so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's God the Son's love that He gave Himself. He might cleanse the church. It's God's love, not ours. So apostasy, again, don't be scared. Apostasy is not falling out of eternal life, not falling out of heaven, not going to hell when you die. Apostasy is not you know, becoming an unbeliever again like you used to be. Apostasy is simply a denial, a rejection of the truth of God's Word, a departure from the Christian walk, and a re-crucifixion of Jesus to self. You just made yourself idol number one. You've broken commandment number one that says you shall have no other God before me. And in apostasy, you, you go out and you make yourself God number one in this, uh, in this regard. We get to chapter 7, we find that only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. We receive this life, so we receive this priesthood. Only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. We actually read the verses a little bit earlier. Hebrews 7, 16 and 17. He became a high priest. You know, in his, in his biology, he wasn't qualified. Jesus was a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. And that tribe was excluded. The, the only priestly tribe was the Levitical tribe, Levi. That was it. One tribe of priests, 12 tribes of non-priests. And Jesus was of the, the, the tribe of Judah. And so he, in earthly terms, he didn't have the biology to become an earthly priest. And even if he did become an earthly priest somehow, what was he going to do? Go into the earthly holy place with an animal offering? What was that going to do? No, he went into heaven. He did the once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so now we have this life in Christ, the indestructible life. I don't know if you want to use these, if some of these are useful for you, particularly related to um, your evangelism or to folks. It might be that you've got a lot of folks that are saved, but they just don't know any of this truth. They don't know any of this doctrine. They don't even know they need to learn this doctrine. And it can be very useful to uh, just challenge them on their priesthood and say, he gave you that indestructible life. What are you doing with it? He gave you an indestructible life which qualified you to be a Melchizedek priest. When have you been a Melchizedek priest lately? Tell me about your Melchizedek priestly offerings, sacrifices. What are you doing? And this be a chance to, uh, to teach in these things. The power of an indestructible life. And guess what? That includes our kids in the Sunday school. That includes every born-again believer. It doesn't matter. I, I love it. I love talking doctrine with the kids of this church. And I'm thankful that, you know, they're, they're way ahead of where a lot of us were. I was saved pretty young, but a lot of us were saved later. And these kids are miles ahead of a lot of us, Okay. And so talk to them. Hey, what are you learning? Pray with them. They can pray. They've got a priestly function. You know? They can't, they can't vote. They can't drive to their 16. They can't vote to their 18. They can't drink to their 21. They can't, they're waiting for all these things. They don't have to wait for their priesthood. They're saved right now. They can participate in the Melchizedek priesthood right now. They can take communion with us in seven minutes. All right? I'm watching the clock. Okay, we'll get there. 
Because they have the indestructible life we all have in Christ. And that's the requirement. So who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, if you're out of fellowship, that means you're not using that power, which means you're disqualified from your priesthood. Okay? Because it's the power of the indestructible life, not the reality of the indestructible life that allows you to serve. When you're carnal, you can't you can't function as a priest. You still are a priest. You just can't function as a priest when you're carnal. All you can do is confess. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once you're in fellowship again, power is back on. Okay? Like when the city turns off your power and you pay your bill and they turn it back on. Okay? Don't raise your hand or tell me if that's happened or when it's happened. But, um, or they shut down your water. Whatever the utility is. When you're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit's power is reactivated again. And you can engage the priesthood that we're supposed to have here in Christ. Again, Psalm 110.4, the promise, He has sworn will not change His mind. We have received this life and so we have received this priesthood. Now unless you're a hyper-dispensationalist or a a mid-Acts dispensationalist or one of those if you're one of those whack jobs, um, then you're with me on this. In fact, if you are, then you wouldn't even be in this class because they reject the book of Hebrews anyway. So um, anyway, those, those, those uh, hyper-dispensationalist types, they believe that Hebrews is not for us, First Peter is not for us, uh, we're not priests, this is all for the Jews, and they would deny everything we've been learning for the last three years. Okay? So if you run across those folks, don't be shocked. Okay, They're out there. Um, but let's just read this for how we understand it. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So in other words, if God the Father is your Father, we should have fear while we're here. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Think about that. We were purchased. And it wasn't something perishable like silver or gold that purchased you. Why do we call silver and gold precious metals? God didn't call them precious. He calls them perishable. You know what He calls precious? The blood of Jesus Christ that saved us. That's what He calls precious. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished. Whoops. Here we go. Stop that. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so here we have it. And we now have a position. We're now priests. You have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Isn't that beautiful? This is the DNA of your new birth. This is the, this is the genetics of your, of your birth in Christ. The imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word which is preached to you. So we're now saved in the church age, and we need to grow Take in the milk of the Word of God and grow in respect to salvation. And then it says, coming to Him as to a living stone. 
Now, Israel never got this far. And these hyper-dispensational people, they, they, they mess this up. Deliberately, I think, it's sad. Because to Israel, the stone is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But to us, the stone is a living stone and the chief cornerstone of our priesthood in Christ, our temple. So coming to him is to a living stone which has been rejected by man but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. Notice that? He's the living stone. We are living stones. Because we're in him. We're conformed to his image. No Old Testament believer could claim any of this. No Old Testament believer was a living stone. And Israel in the Old Testament rejected the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. You also as living stones, and maybe if you want to put that same parenthesis in there, choice and precious in the sight of God, feel free. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This cannot be Israel. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. You know how profound that is? Schaefer wrote that in uh, volume 4, chapter 3. He listed 28-something differences between Israel and the church. And this is one of my favorites. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. Living stones, they offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As it is contained in Scripture, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's us. Israel rejected him. They crucified their Christ. They said his blood be upon us and upon our children forever. And in their taunting, in their mocking, that very blood they mocked is the blood that will usher in their kingdom. But it's been 2,000 years and they're still waiting. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this book. It's been, it's been marvelous these last three years. And I pray that we, uh, we pay heed to what we've learned, that we appreciate it, that we not shy away from it. As it, it gets deep. We've got to think. But we need to think. We need to grow. These are, these are the mature meat doctrines for the church age, and I thank you for them. I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. And here we have the communion table, Father. The blood which Israel rejected is the blood that cleanses us. We're washed in this blood. We're saved. And yet that blood still has a future purpose. That blood is still on hold. There is coming a day when he will return and that blood will inaugurate the throne of David, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people will be brought into the new covenant. Thank you for all the the doctrine that equips us in these things. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will.